Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest this week is one of the greatest songwriters of all time, the legendary Lamont Dozier. Alongside of Brian and Eddie Holland, Lamont wrote some of the most memorable hits of the Motown era, including Stop in the Name of Love, Reach Out, I'll Be There, You Keep Me Hanging On, Where Did Our Love Go, Heat Wave, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, and many, many more. The artists who have recorded Lamont's songs are a who's who of the greatest voices ever. Diana Ross and the Supremes, The Four Tops, Marvin Gaye, The Isley Brothers, Aretha Franklin. His songs have also been covered by James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, Phil Collins, Rod Stewart, The Doobie Brothers, Fleetwood Mac, The Rolling Stones, Jerry Garcia, the list goes on and on. Throughout his career, Lamont has scored a phenomenal 54 number one songs, and he and the Holland Brothers were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990. Lamont was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1988, and in 2009 was honored with their highest accolade, the Johnny Mercer Award. Looking at the list of songs that Lamont has had a hand in crafting is enough to make you shake your head in wonder, but hearing him tell the stories surrounding them is even more fascinating. We were lucky enough to speak with Lamont live in the offices of Atlantic Records in Los Angeles in 2019. welcome the legendary Lamont Dozier. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this and for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. You know, when we get ready for these classes, I always love to learn more about our guests and go back and re-listen to the music. And you wonder, in listening to all these songs that you have created, what the world would be like without these songs. Because these songs are literally the soundtrack of our lives. You know, some of, of these titles, I'm sure you guys know, but just making some notes and thinking about the songs that Lamont wrote. Heat Wave, Where Did Our Love Go? Baby, I Need Your Loving. Come See About Me, Baby Love. How Sweet It Is To Be Loved By You. Stop In The Name Of Love. Nowhere To Run. I Can't Help Myself, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. It's the same old song. I hear a symphony. You can't hurry, love. Reach out, I'll be there. You keep me hanging on. Standing in the shadows of love. Reflections. Jimmy Mack. So many more. Right? Right? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One person was involved with the creation of all of those songs, and he's right here. <laughs> Thank you. So... Let's back up a little bit. And something we talked about backstage is a lot of people may not know this. When you were 13 years old, growing up in Detroit, you formed a group called the Romeos. Right. And the Romeos had a song that you wrote and you produced at the age of 15. Right. Started getting on Detroit radio locally. Right. And then... As early as 1957, you signed that record where? Uh, Atco. Atco Records, part of Atlantic and, and now the Warner Music Group. Right. So your history with this company is over 60 years old. How That's about right. that? That's right. Lamont's solo albums, some of which were released on Atlantic, some of which were released on Warner Brothers. So he has been part of our company 
for a very, very long time. Yes. Which is super exciting to me. And, you know, in addition to the work that he did with Phil Collins and so many other great Warner Music right. act, group acts. So the Romeos were signed to Atco Records by the legendary Jerry Wexler. Right. And I, I love the story you told me backstage that you were not happy with how the Romeos were being treated, so you wrote a nasty letter to Jerry Wexler. Yeah. Uh, you know, at I the age of 15. 15. And if anyone knows the history of Jerry Wexler, he did not like nasty letters. And um, I thought I'd give him an ultimatum. Uh, I thought the group was not getting the concentration that we needed. The song Fine, Fine Baby went, I don't know, top 40 or something in those days. And But I thought we deserved to have an album out. I said it was time for me to give these company and put a little fire on this company and give them an ultimatum. So I sent this letter in to Jerry Wexler, not knowing who he was at the time, but just to the powers that be, you know, uh, who ever concerned with this record. Wrote him a last letter, if you can't get behind us or you don't want to be with us, then we'll have to make a move and go elsewhere because there's a lot of people after us. And if you don't get behind this record, we're going to take our goods somewhere else. And what did I say that for? Matter of fact, this was on my own. I didn't tell the guys I was going to do this. <laughs> and the letter came to reply, my boys, I'm, I, knew, I know how you feel, and we over here wish you well. <laughs> and I, I said, what? Oh, shit. <laughs> Farewell, and we, in all your endeavors, goodbye, good luck. See ya. Adios. And I said, oh, man, these guys will kick my ass. I got kicked off the, the label, you know. I said, oh, man. So anyway, I let them know that. I, I made up some lies saying that uh, they just didn't appreciate what we were about, man, so don't worry <laughs> about it. You know, so uh, it smoothed over. But years later, we met at the uh, BMI dinner. I think it was in 63. We were doing a lot of Martha and the Vandella stuff in those days. And I came up to him and said, Jerry, do you remember a kid writing you a letter uh, giving you ultimatum <laughs> <laughs> about what to do with the group called the Romeos? And he just bust out and went to laughing, you know what I mean? Man. I mean, he thought it was funny, but we just had a good laugh and we became good friends years after that. So now the Romeos are broken up. Yep. Tell us about the Voice Masters. The Voice Masters was a group owned and recorded by uh, Anna Records, Barry Gordy's sister. So before Motown Records existed, Barry Gordy's sister, Anna, had a label out of Detroit called Anna Records. Right. And the Voice Masters were signed to Anna Records, and you joined the group. Right. The two of the guys in the Voice Masters were, had gotten drafted. On the radio, they asked anybody who was interested in becoming a voice master to uh, come down and take an audition. So I did just that. By this time, the Romeos had busted up, you know. And, and so I went down, I guess I was, had to be about uh, 18, 19. Went down and, of course, passed the audition. She heard me sing uh, Gwen Gordy and listened to songs I had written to on some brown paper shopping bag, you know. I, so uh, poor, I didn't, I didn't throw any kind of paper away. You know, any kind of room on a piece of paper were available. I, I'd save it and use it for an idea, jot down an idea. So I was cutting up all of the paper, paper bags, paper, brown paper bags, and using it for my, my working stuff. So I passed the audition at the company there at Anna Records, and I cut, had a song called, uh, eventually put out a song called Popeye. That was a big, big song that uh, running up the charts locally. A song you had written? A song I had written and sang. Uh, the band was uh, at Marvin Gaye on drums, Harvey Fuqua on drums and piano, Robert White on guitar, and James Jameson on bass. You know, This was at uh, Anna Records, and the record shot off you know, locally on the charts, you know. And so uh, the people that own Popeye, uh, King Distributors, or King Brothers, they said, cease and desist. You don't have our rights, permission right. or in rights to do this song. So the company got scared and decided not to uh, go any further with the song. 
and we pulled it out and we changed it to Benny the Skinny Man or something. I had to change it, but it just didn't have the same appeal to the to the people. So, and I cried like a baby because I thought that, that was that, that was, was the my, end. That, yeah, that was the end. I said I'm finished, and I thought that that, that Popeye was my ticket to <laughs> fame and fortune. You know what I mean? So was that around the same time that you first met Barry Gordy? Barry came in one day, come to think of it, I, was, I wound up being the janitor there at Anna Records, too. Barry came in one day when I was mopping the floor at Anna Records, and he had this uh, acetate or this test pressing of a song called Money by Barrett Strong, you know. Well, Barrett Strong was a friend of mine. We were in junior high together, along with a whole lot of other people that wound up at Motown. But came, he was coming and walking back and forth, nervous, and chewing his tongue and stuff, that, that old habit of his. And he put, best life in life Be- Best free. things in life for yeah. free, right. <laughs> and he came in, he, he said, I said, man, that's a hit, man. He said, you think so? You think so? He just gave you, anybody- you said that's a hit, man, while you were mopping the floors at Anna Rick. Right, right. That's how most A&R people get their start, by the way. That's a hit, man. <laughs> I said, you think so? Pick up the record, then he go ask somebody else. Before the day is over, he'd come back in. And man, I want you to hear something. I said, man, you just played me that record <laughs> you know, early today. And he said, oh, you think it's a hit record? I said, yeah, it's Barry. You got a hit record that, man. He said, oh, OK, thanks, man. And he put, <laughs> he put out the record, and it was a big hit record. And was that on Motown? It was on Tamala. Tamala, right. Yeah, Tamala. And it, it, it was a big hit. It was the start. He had Mary Wills, too, another artist. He decided to do some work with, uh, and she did pretty well, too. With Smokey wrote some songs. My guy. Right. My guy. Right. So Barry now starts his label, right. Motown, which is, I guess, partner, like sister label to Tamla, mm-hmm. and I guess in the shadow of Anna and all right. these other labels with his family. Right. Before you and the Hollands started writing together, mm-hmm. Motown was starting to have some hits. So mm-hmm. Smokey wrote Shop Around for the Miracles. Brian co-wrote Please Mr. Postman for right. the Marvelettes. That's right. And here you are kind of taking it all in, sizing it up. Well, you know, after Anna, Gwen closed her doors at Anna Records, Barry said, man, why don't you come over here to uh, Motown? We're going to do some, we're doing great things over there, man. And he always had a problem uh, with getting material for all the artists he was signing. So he was signing a lot of artists yes, back then. Yeah, and he didn't have enough material or producers. And he said, why don't you come over? I said, man, well, you know, I still got this, this singing bug. You want to be an artist? Yeah. He said, well, you can be an artist, you know, but I want you to write and produce for these other people. You know, he said, great, great. Okay, fine. So I signed the contract with him I was, as an artist producer, writer. I mean, he can't, even, he can't even do that. I think it's against the law to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but he, so he had me totally wrapped up there. And when did you first meet Brian Holland? Brian was there. He had, like you said, did, uh, he was part of the writing team on the... Um, Marvelous. Right. Marvelous, right. One day I was there, newly arrived songwriter. I'm in the, in the studio uh, writing out a little tune, picking out a little song called Forever. And that in my mind, I was a habit, uh, I was going to do it on the Marvelettes, you know. And he came in and heard me playing it. And he said, man, you need a, you need a bridge in that song. And I said, it's uh, funny you should ask, because I've gone as far as I can go with it. You know what I mean? Something is missing. He said, yeah, well, stick this bridge in it, bam. And that was the start of Holland Dozier. Was that the first song that got cut that you guys wrote? Right. And that was just you and Brian. Brian Holland. When did Eddie Holland join it? Brian, uh, Eddie had a song out called Jamie. It did pretty well for him. But he never did like singing. He was always kind of stage fright. You know? But he's really, at heart, he was accounting. He always wanted to be accounting, count the money. An accountant? Yeah, he was accounting at home. Uh, that was his really, his heart, his passion was to be accounting because he figured that was the, where the money was. <laughs> you know? So anyway, uh, one day I was trying to, I've always wrote lyrics and melodies, so I'm trying to write all these songs. Brian and I trying to produce, Brian was a recording engineer. He was the, and so he and I were trying to produce and write, and I was trying to write the lyrics and teach 
So Eddie just sit by and, and watch me struggling, trying to, trying to keep up the pace of getting songs turned in. I said, man, why, why don't you give me a shot at writing the lyrics? We could get more songs out. You and Brian. Was he known as a lyric writer? No, he could write. He was known as an accountant. (laughs) (laughs) He he could write any lyrics. He just wanted to give give me a shot, man, at doing the the lyrics and stuff. But he had a philosophical way of writing lyrics or what he thought was uh, good lyrics. And anyway, we gave him a shot. Do you remember the first song that the three of you wrote together as Holland Dozier Holland? Probably the uh, song called. No, what was the name of that first song? It had to be something that wasn't a great hit. It was like uh, something on, uh, damn, so many songs I'm trying to remember. Have you ever thought about how many songs you've written in your life? Oh, about 1,500 close by. And you're still writing every day? You still write every day. It's like a work ethic, a passion. You know, and I'm, a, I'm a son of the muse, I call myself. And then this music uh, dictates my uh, what I should do each day, and that is to get up, do my toiletries, <laughs> and get to the piano and uh, start banging out some notes and until and some you, sticks. Do you always, what comes first for you? Is it the, the, the notes, the melody? Yeah, me working on something that feels good, you know? Like I used to sit there, my, I, have, I used to have theme songs I played for myself that Got my juices flowing in the morning. Like one of them was one of the main things was this so hard of mine. The feeling of that. like that is that based on personal experience no you know i've always been a romantic you know this song was probably watching soap operas a great fan of all my children (laughs) see (laughs) see if you think you knew everything there was to know about lamont dozier i guarantee you did not know that the one thing you can you know at least one thing you can take away all my children yeah all my children Probably listening, a lot of uh, those silly stories they had kind of put this thought in my mind. And it was a feeling that I got from uh, watching uh, all my children soap operas that I come up with this idea, you know, this old heart of mine been broke a thousand times. You know, that type of feeling because uh, that's how I felt. I felt I had, I, had, I had a broken heart or something, which was a lie. It was just something I, you know. So would you then bring that concept to Brian and Eddie? Yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, Brian and I had already cut the track and didn't have the lyrics written, you know, and then I would give a, my interpretation of how the song should go lyrically and give Eddie uh, a piece of uh, the lyric to run with while he and I, uh, while Brian and I were working on other things, you know. So we're, we're jumping around a lot, but as Holland Dozier Holland, mm-hmm. what was the first real hit record that you guys wrote and produced? Oh, God, probably the, the really, it was Mafa. Heat uh, Wave? Heat Wave. Whenever I'm with him, something inside burning, and I feel with One thing that I have to ask listening to a song like that, the Funk Brothers. Yeah. I mean, the most incredible musicians. Mm -hmm. All of them in the same place at the same time recording all of these songs. Tell us about that. You know, uh, James James and I, we were great friends. We played played in a band. I played drums. And it was a band called Popcorn Wiley. We used to do bar mitzvahs and all the kind of parties to make a few bucks here and there. And James was the bass player, and he had his big you know, upright bass. 
and uh, I played drums, and Richard Watt, Popcorn Wally was the piano player, and he got the gigs. And, uh, so he was one of the, the, the main funk brothers that, that came over to Motown, and uh, we kind of reconnected when he got there. And then there was Robert White, who played with the Moonglows, with Harvey Fuqua, and Marvin Gaye, and uh, Marvin and I became great friends over at Anna Records because he had a little thing going with Anna. And <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what what was Marvin's role in the Funk Brothers? What instrument? Uh, he played drums too. He played drums and, he, and a little piano. But but basically, uh, by the time he got to Motown. He was doing his own thing, but his riches and creatively came out from playing piano. So when there's an artist on the Motown roster like Marvin Gaye, yeah. who's a songwriter himself, right? how does he come to cut one of your songs like How Sweet It Is to Be Loved By You? Well, he was a friend of ours, first of all. Then Barry came in and said, look, I want you guys to concentrate on getting something from Marvin, because Marvin, he's going off the deep end. He wants to be Frank Sinatra. <laughs> You know, I said, and he said, what? He said, man, you want to make money in this business? Well, get Frank Sinatra out of your mind. And, <laughs> and who, who was saying this to? Uh, Barry was this saying is this Barry to Marvin. Saying them to Marvin, right. And because uh, they, they had the bits arguing back and forth all the but, time. But if Marvin is a songwriter, mm -hmm. you know, artists who are songwriters, as we all know, yeah. are always like, no, no, I'm not singing anybody else's song. But Marvin, uh, he considered himself to be a suave. Frank Sinatra type, you know, and he just, just... So did you write that song specifically for him? No, well, Marvin started out saying a stubborn kind of fellow. That was his, his first song, I think. That was a big, big song. But and then he went to, after that, a couple of other things, uh, Pride and Joy. And then I, I did, I came up with a thing called uh, How Sweet It Is. I had given him a demo for him to learn it, you know. He was always running off to the golf course. <laughs> and I had to get this song that was Barry, Barry Gordy came in and said, man, we gotta get this song. Bob was going out of town and he's gonna be gone for two or three months. And, the, and all the stuff in the can is drained. We need some new stuff. So actually, how sweet it is, I had in my back pocket for myself. I'm thinking, man, this is for me. This is gonna bring me back. This is gonna put me on top. As a singer, you know, I always thought I had that in the back of my mind. I wanted to get back out there and chirp, you know what I mean? <laughs> but then Barry said, man, I thought you guys were, came into our little office. I thought you guys were going to have fun for Marvin and everything. I said, shit. <laughs> and I reached into my back pocket and pulled out the, the reel of reels. It's a little something I've been working on, you know. And so, so he heard, he said, yeah, that's it. Cut it, you know, and I said, all right, fine. So the demo was made, and uh, we gave it to Marvin to learn. I sent it over to him to learn. He didn't learn the song. And by the time we had set up the date for him to come in to do the song, the secretary called him to get him in there. He said, what do you guys want, man? The song, man, I gave you two weeks ago to learn. I didn't learn. I said, man, please, because we're tired now, yeah? But he's always cursing me. You know, he's goddamn song. You know, you know, the wrong key. That song's in the wrong key, man. I can't sing that shit. You know. <laughs> I said, but just get down here and sing the song. Barry's gonna be pissed off if you don't get it. Said, okay, I'll be down in a minute. So he come in about two hours later. You know, came in with his golf clubs and shit. And. Uh, <laughs> And he got, he came in there and he said, man, well, we put him on the microphone. He said, man, I don't know this song, man. Let me hear the song. He said, Brian and Eddie looked at me and said, man, this guy is crazy or something, man. So we put it on. He started listening to the demo. And sure enough, he just started to listen. He said, play it again. I told you, this damn thing is too high. Again, but when the thing is too high, we were doing it on purpose so to give him a, a reason of, to, to reach for the notes, to to stretch him out to, to do his thing, because he was great when he had to improvise, you know? So the song came on, he listened to it, he said, oh man, man, this thing is so high, it's so high. He kept saying it was so high, and finally, all of a sudden, he started slipping into his false self. Ah, he was doing those little things with his voice, you know? And then 
one take. He said, he said all right, I'm ready, man, because I got I got a sucker waiting on me at the golf course. You know, <laughs> went into the room and down into the what we call the snake pit. He walked around a few minutes and humming and listening, you know, and then he said, all right, play it, play it. Bam, one take. One take on a song he didn't even know going right, into the right. They did it. He said, is that good enough? Then he took his golf course and went out the back door. <laughs> he didn't even see if we wanted to say it was right. But he knew what he had did was right in his heart. And then how long after you have that vocal take, do you finish the record? Do you mix the record? Yeah, we put the backgrounds on it, whatever. So that all happened really quick? Yeah, saxophone. We could have a song done in a couple of days, and this because we had to get something out around him right away. And then what, do you remember Barry's reaction when he heard Marvin's version of How Sweet Oh, he just had a big smile on his face. So he said, man, he, we were his fair-haired boys that he could always run to if we needed something in a hurry, you know for the Supremes or whoever. You know. and, and you told me before that Barry had excellent ears. Oh, his great ears, man. He knew what, what, and he would say, he wouldn't do anything, would stand over you, stand over you and tell you, well, why don't you do this or do that? And he said, listen, go back and rethink. Yeah, there's a couple of parts, that's a great song, but it needs something else. I can't tell you exactly what, but there's something missing in the, in the bridge or you need uh, a tag that, a B section. So we would go back and do it. Sure enough, we would find out what the problem was with the song. And, so and he, he was usually he was right. He was usually spot on. With yeah, he was notes. spot on. When he, when he had something to say, not that he had to say something all the time, but when he did say something, it was right on. I was telling Lamont earlier before we came on stage that I've always read and heard about these legendary A&R meetings inside of Motown where everybody, all the producers, all the writers, Barry Gordy, everybody sat there right. weekly and listened to each other's songs to decide what the records were going to be chosen, selected, and released, right, correct? That's right. And these were called the quality control quality meetings? Quality control meeting, yeah. Walk, walk us through a meeting like that. Uh, Who, who's in the room? Secretaries, people that worked at the studio. There would be songs cut from the past, past week that he, we would all be listening to, you know. And how, how many songs typically in a, in, a, in a week were created at Motown? 30 or 40. 30 or 40 songs. Yeah. And you would be listening to all 30 or 40 yeah, songs? Yeah, and from all of the producers and writers. And, and typically, how many would he raise his hand and say, that one, that's a hit? He would let everybody do the, the picking, you know. And if they didn't pick what he thought was the right one, he said, I'm putting it out anyway, <laughs> you know. And he would be right most of the time. And then, uh, and were all the other producers and writers in the room at the same yeah, time? Yeah, right. And was right. there a competition? Yeah, it was friendly competition, but but it was the best song won. The the best song that he considered, and the people, secretaries and whatnot, considered was the song would get the release. So when your song was chosen in a given meeting in a given week, were you guys on top of the world? We were lucky enough to always probably have. Whatever we submitted out of, uh, say, 20 songs, you know, 15 or 16, that would be the ones that were released, you know, every time. So how many would you and the Hollands write in a typical week? Six, seven songs in a week, yeah. Some of them would take a little while long to finish, uh, but the, most of the time we could write a song, uh, top 10 song, number one, in about 20 minutes. Once we get the, the gist of where we wanted to go. But we all, we had an advantage because we all felt the same. And we were like, had a kinship. We thought the like, we felt the like. We all liked the same type of music, the gospel, classical music, and we mixed it all together. Were you listening to 
the hit radio of the time to know what other songs outside of Motown we did were listen. hits? We did listen, but not necessarily copying anything, but it, unless, unless it was just so outstanding, you know. But to understand why a certain song became a hit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a philosophy about it, about what we were writing, you know. You know. Well, if we do it, we sit down, we'd have the, the three of us would talk about, why did she leave the guy, you know, or, or why don't she love the guy, or why, what did he do wrong, you know, and like Stop in the Name of Love, the infidelity song. And I, you know, I came in the studio and I told Brian that he was sitting there playing a little bit of the, the intro to Stop in the Name of Love. And I said, man, I got just a song for this. I just had a situation that <laughs> came into my life that uh, yesterday, I didn't go into it, but I got caught in the no-tail motel. And the girl, uh, supposed to be my main squeeze, she heard about me being down at the... No-tail motel. At the no-tail motel. Mm -hmm. I was asleep. The other girl... <laughs> the other girl heard her banging on the door because she was like a terror. My main squeeze that is. She, she, and everybody, don't, don't fool with her because she's into Lamont and, and she'll get you if you, if you do the wrong stuff. <laughs> anyway, the girl got out the back door. She heard her, come out there, come out there, bitch. You know, and screaming and carrying her. And I was in the, I said, oh God, girl, girl, get her, get her, go out the back door. Then I act like I was sleepy and I just, I answered, hey, what's, what's all this noise? Lot, meantime, the people that was in there doing wrong in the hotel, no tail motel, that was down there wasn't supposed to be there. They were all scared and looking out the window and trying to figure <laughs> out what's all this noise about because everybody thought they got caught. You know what I mean? <laughs> Let's talk about the Supremes. So what was the first time that you met Diana Ross? Mm, well, I guess they were always there. They were called uh, the no-hit Supremes. And the no-hit Supremes? Yeah, the rest of the artists would tease them all the time, you know, because they didn't have any records they were selling. So they had released a, a bunch of songs before yeah, you started before writing for them. Other artists, other producers had produce things on it that just didn't happen, you know. Until one day I came up with this idea, Where Did I Love Go? I had written the song for the Marvelettes, but the Marvelettes just turned it down. He said, no, baby, we don't do stuff like that no more. I mean, because they got so highly, highly flighty with their, because they, they had two or three big hits, you know what I mean? And so they were like stuck on themselves probably. And uh, they refused to do the song. Where I said, and I was like shocked because there, it was a law there too that it, if you cut a song and you don't get it on an artist, you're going to get charged for the bill. <laughs> I mean, the bill comes so to you it was, personally. It was incumbent on the writers to find one of the Motown artists to that's do right, the song. That's right. And if you didn't, it'd come out of your own pocket. You know what I mean? Oh, I flipped out, man. I said, I got to get some for got somebody to do this song. So here so I know what I do. I go to the No Hood Supreme. <laughs> they can afford to be nasty. <laughs> you know, and they got to do this song, you know. Baby, baby. you start having success with a group like the Supremes, uh -huh. do you then go and write for them and write specifically for a vocal like Diana Ross's right. vocal? Right, exactly. Once they hit, 
we'd go crazy, you know, just getting more, working on the next songs, you know. In this particular case, it was just magic time. I mean, we had 13 number ones in a row. I mean, you know, it was like, where'd our love go? Then baby love, come see about me, stop in the name of love. You can't hear any love, blah, 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 blah. I, I see a theme. There's a lot of love going on. Yeah, a around. lot of love. <laughs> a lot of un, unrequited love. <laughs> I put it that way. So do you get particularly close to an artist like the Supremes when you're having so much success as their writers and producers? Not really. I mean, just about... The, Everybody, all of us, we would do our work in the studio, and like the tops and everything, and, and uh, we spend sometimes 18 hours a day in the studio cutting an album project. And everybody went their separate ways after we finished the work, you know. Do you, do you have a, a song that is either a song that's very special to you or a favorite song that an act like the Supremes cut on you, or are they all favorites? I hear symphony. Probably is one of my favorite songs. By the way, and what was, what was the inspiration behind I Hear a Symphony? Well, you know, I used to go to the movies a lot, and I used to sit right down front and like look and have this feeling of being in the movie with the people. And I noticed something, that every time one of the main artists would come on, they had their own theme song. They have a feeling, you know, the, Whoever it was, uh, whatever the star was, had their own song. The leading man or the, the leading lead lady. Man or the lead lady had a song. So I said, gosh, that's a pretty good idea. Whenever you're near, I hear a symphony ring. <laughs> you know what I mean? That type of stuff, because you hear this song, it was though the song was following them around, you know, every time they pop on, this, on the scene. Whenever you're near, I hear a symphony. When you bring a song like that into the Funk Brothers mm -hmm. and it's time to cut the session, right. are there lead sheets, are there charts, or everybody's just going just by Just a ear? chart. We would get a chart. Hank Cosby would be our guy to write down whatever we played on the piano, the notes, the, any kind of significant melodies that ran through mm -hmm. the chords that we would play, and he would write that out. Then we'd get in the studio with the guys, and I, I would most of the time go directly to James Jameson, Brian would go into the studio and get to work with uh, Benny Benjamin, the drummer. And uh, I would dun 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 to Jameson, say for instance, on I Can't Help Myself. You know, um, you would sing the part to him? Oh yeah, I would play the, I'd play the part on piano, you know, the bass line, you know, in the chord and the feeling, so he get the feeling. And he would always give you more than what you asked for, mm -hmm. you know. And the same thing with the drummer, Benny Benjamin. Those guys were fantastic. They made us look good. There was two sets of punk brothers. First string, there was the guys we used. And we couldn't get them. We would wait until they were available. You know what I mean? Because everybody knew that their songs would be better for it. You know? You Can't Hurry Love. Yeah. Tell us about that song. You Can't Hurry Love is really a gospel song. It's been no really real story about it. You know, Grandma used to say, you can't hurry love, you just have to wait. If you're upset about it, I remember uh, my grandma, she was a hairdresser. I had a beauty shop. A lot of the women would ask her for advice, love advice. And it's, child, you got to be still, and you, you, can't, you can't hurry love. You got to just wait on it, wait on the real thing to happen. And I'm sitting there listening. Wow. But when I feel that I... I 
remember me as a child when I stayed with my grandmother, listening to my grandfather as well. I used to watch him when I was about like 12, 13. And the people that come down to the, the walkway, going to my grandmother's uh, shop, and he'd say, good morning, sugar pie. How you doing, honey bunch? And I said. And they never came and asked for publishing? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that's how I would uh, get ideas, just uh, eavesdropping or listening to uh, people talk, you know. And were you writing them down or just remembering? No, they were just in my head. And years later, I did this sugar pie, honey. But I was thinking of sitting there dun, 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 at the piano. And I saw my grandfather flirting with these women. You know? <laughs> how you doing, sugar pie, honey bunch? You know, and, and that's how it would, the idea would uh, be born. Let's talk about the Four Tops. Tell us about the Four Tops. Four Tops, we had a song that was sitting around a year that we couldn't finish. Sometimes you have those songs that you can't finish. It just won't. Most songs, in a way, write themselves. If you don't put the right stuff to them, it just don't, you just don't feel it. You know, it just, they want to they wanna be, they want to be said another way. I'll put it that way. And sometimes they sit around for a while, in this case, this particular song sat around, like the tops were sitting around. We had just signed them. They said, man, when are you guys going to do something on us, blah, blah, blah. And, said, and the Brian said, man, I got this, we've got this track. Why don't we, why don't we finish that always? He said, well, we'll see. You know. And then one day, I was sitting there, and we would listen to all the tracks that we had that were unfinished. And it just came to the track had a certain mood to it. And I was looking deep and list, listening deep into the track, and all of a sudden it just came out. Baby, I need your loving. Got to have all your loving. You know, I said, that is. He said, yeah, that's it. What do you think, Eddie? You know, that's it, man. Call the tops and tell them we got this song. After a year, we got them a song. And that was the first song that you ever cut on them? Yeah. Some say for a man to then we I'd rather be if it means having you the key cause lately I've been losing sleep baby I need your loving got to have all your loving baby I need your loving got to have all your tell us something about Levi Stubbs Oh man, I can't say enough about Levi. Levi, he didn't want to sing that song, by the way. He wanted uh, Lawrence Payton to sing it. And they, and they were like uh, all of one accord. I mean, they were all saying, no, man, you got the voice, you got the urgency, we got it. Because they weren't one of those groups that fuss. Hey, look, man, you were fooling with my rent money, man. You sing that song. <laughs> <laughs> sing that song. So, uh, and Levi said, okay, okay. And he, he reluctantly became the lead singer for the group, you know. But uh, he had that urgency in his voice. We give him, he's another one, those artists that you can give a little bit and he'll give you more than you ask for, you know, every time. You know? Well, let's talk about a couple of other top songs. Reach Out, I'll Be There. Yeah. Tell us. I mean, that's, that's exactly what I was talking about. Of his yeah, vocal. his voice, right. It's just uh, in, in, 
It just, I can't say enough about his voice. He could just, once he hit into a pocket, you just let him, you stand back and watch him shine, you know what I mean? Let me, let me throw out a couple of other titles and tell me what you can remember. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, sticking with, with the top, Standing in the Shadows of Love. Standing in the shadows of love, I'm getting ready. This is, this is like a copycat thing of Reach Out. I mean, the, the vibe, the feel, the energy, the same. It was a cousin, you might say, to Reach Out, I'd be there. How about It's the Same Old Song? It's the same old You know that song, The Tops, had been on Columbia Records. They had did an album. Before Motown? Before Motown. It was in the can. And so after Baby, I Need Your Lovin', yeah, after Baby, I Need Your Lovin' came out and was a big hit on them, CBS decided they was going to capitalize on the, the success and release this album that they had in the can of the Tops. So Barry came in one day and said, man, these people over there, man, trying to steal our thunder. <laughs> you know what I mean? We got to do something. Uh, you got to come up with something right away. And all eyes seemed to look at me as the idea man. What you think, Lamont? And I said, hmm. I said, I got this title I've always had. I hadn't done anything with Go. It's the same old song with a different meaning since you've been gone. I thought that was a clever idea. It's the same old song, but with a different meaning since you've been gone. It's the same, same old song, but with a different meaning since you've been gone. Oh, I can't bear to hear it. It's the same old song, but with a different meaning In fact, that particular song we cut three times <laughs> because something wasn't gelling. You know, uh, it was just something about it. Until finally the third time was the chance. I don't know whether it was in the track or whatever it was. It wasn't Levi. It was just something wasn't working in the track. The structure. We had to change the structure a couple of times. But the third time was the charm. What would you do if you cut a record that you knew was a hit? But for some reason, it didn't make it into the quality control meeting. Well, oh, yeah. Uh, quality control was led up by Billie Jean Brown. And she didn't like this particular song. She was the, the librarian, the yeah, music librarian? Yeah, and she brought the material in to be heard to the meeting. So she had the real power, because if she didn't bring in the song, it was not listened to. Yeah, you, you don't know. And the guy said, what happened to my song? It wasn't in the meeting today, you know. In this case, it was like a song called Jimmy Mack. Martha has, had had some words with Barry. Martha Reeves, Martha, Martha Reeves, and the Vandellas. Uh, yeah, she had some words with Barry because she, she felt that she wasn't getting the attention that they used to get when they had the string hits they had. And so they, they figured, she figured they were being left out. And, she, and I know we got some stuff in the can that you could put out, you, you know, you're not putting, the, you're not giving us the attention. So he got on Billy Jean. He said, Billy Jean, give me everything you got in the can on Martha. And so she reluctantly came, put Jimmy Mack in the list. A half an hour into the meeting, Jimmy Mack popped up and Barry heard that thing. He was cussing like a sailor. You know, he said, How long has this song been in the can, man? She said, well, uh, I, Barry, I didn't feel that it had necessary. <laughs> he said, get this song to, ready to be released. How long did she hold out on you? I mean, six months at least. Talk about some of the other Motown artists that we haven't spoken about yet. Mm-hmm. So, Smokey Robinson. 
Smokey Robinson's a great artist, great songwriter. He wrote a lot of great songs. And a vice president of Motown. And a vice president of Motown. He was one of the first guys that was with Barry from the start. Would shop around. And he caught some of your songs. Yeah, I wrote a song for him called Mickey's Monkey. It was a big hit for the Miracles. Yeah, big, yeah, it went to number two or something on the chart. I got a dance to keep him crying. <laughs> it did fairly well. What about the Isley Brothers? Isley Brothers, probably the biggest thing. This old heart of mine. This old heart of mine, yeah. What was working with them like? It was great. It was great because the, the talent, when people got talent, Ron, they make it fun, you know. Well, Ron Isley, Ron one of the great singers of all time. Fantastic, you know, the vocals and stuff, you know. We were lucky enough to get people that could really sing and really uh, deliver the goods, you know. What about Stevie Wonder? Stevie Wonder, I wrote his first hit called Contract on Love. And the song went to top 40, then they flipped it to fingertips. And the rest is history. <laughs> fingertips was not yours. But back then, you got paid for the A side and the B side. Yeah, that's so right. you did yeah, okay. That's right. No that's problem. Right. Yeah, the Contract on Love. Yeah, my Contract on Love when he was 11 years old. And then they flipped it and then. Fingertips. Da, uh, da, it, was, da, 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 it was live, too. Right. It was cut live, too, at the Apollo. Yeah. What about, even though she's not Motown, you work with Aretha Franklin? Yeah, I just I wrote an album that produced in 76. Sweet Passion, that was yeah. it. That was for Atlantic? That was for Atlantic, yeah, yeah. What is your memory of recording Aretha and hearing her sing? Aretha, we went to school together, too. A lot of people don't know that story. I didn't know Aretha could sing. I thought, and this one day, one somebody said, we're going to get together, a bunch of us, and go see Aretha at her father's church. And she said, Aretha, what are we going to see Aretha for? You know, man, you don't know Aretha sang her ass off, man. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And she, yeah. So we decided to go down this one Sunday. And her father got up, yeah, Sister Ree, I think it's time now for Sister Ree. What y'all say? Yay, Sister Ree. How old was she at that point? Teenager? About 14, 14? 15. And uh, I'm sitting there looking, waiting for Sister Ree. Sister Ree got up, came out there and got on the piano, man, and opened my mouth, man, and the place went crazy. I said, what the hell is that? You know, I mean, she's, I mean, I never heard anything like that. I really, and I thought, you know, she was so different in school, kind of quiet and reserved, but I didn't know she had all that built up inside her. <laughs> when she let open her mouth and start doing that stuff, man, screaming and shit, I said, man, I never heard anything. It was just fantastic. I mean, that's why they call her the queen of soul. I mean, because she was just... But you think about all of this talent being in one place. Yeah. Oh, man. In Detroit at the That's same right. time. That's right. That's right. It's crazy. Barry Gordy reaped the benefit of it. That's for sure. I mean, because, well, a lot of the people, artists, weren't from Detroit. Some, well, a few of them. Like Marlon was from Washington, D.C. The Isley's from Chicago or somewhere. And then the uh, Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson that wrote Ain't No Mountain High and a bunch of those songs. They were from New York, you know what I mean? You know, Barry was just the recipient of all those people. He was lucky to be, to get their hands on the, that talent, you know. What about the Jackson Five? Jackson Five from Gary, Indiana. Another thing that he didn't want to particularly be involved in the kids, I don't mean even the kids, and the nuisance and blah, 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 until he heard Michael, you know what I mean? Then it was a whole nother ball game, you know what I mean? And then he got behind him, the whole company behind him. And again, once again, the history was made. You know what's interesting to me? The difference between a songwriter and an artist mm -hmm. is if you write a song, that song ends up on a journey of its own. Yeah, that's right. So your songs have been covered so many times. By so many people. I mean, how, that, do, how do you feel? Like, let me give you some of the examples of 
other artists, post-Motown, covering Lamont songs. So how sweet it is to be loved by you. Marvin Gaye did the original. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, on the radio all the time was James Taylor. I want to stop. Thank you, baby. I just want to stop. Thank you, baby. Like sugar sometimes How sweet it is to be loved by you And so when you hear someone else sing one of your songs and you did not write it for them, but they're singing it anyway, how do you feel? I feel great, especially for that one. <laughs> that was just... Because <laughs> I can see me... Tracing that, singing that song all the way to the bank. You know? <laughs> well, let, let, let's keep going. How about Linda Ronstadt, who was the covers queen of the 70s, yeah. doing, doing Heat Wave? trip to the bank yeah how about the doobie brothers oh yeah doing take me take uh, me in your arms and and rock, rock me a little while, a little while. And that was originally kim weston or was it kim originally weston, that's right that's right the doobie's the one that really took me to the bank though <laughs> like a rock band take one of your songs yeah. and arrange it totally differently how do you feel about that i love it especially the doobies you know although they took me to the bank too it was a hell of a ride you know <laughs> what about vanilla fudge doing you keep me hanging oh, on oh yeah 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 that they did that kind of psychedelic yeah and that was i, I found and out i was number one with that yeah that was the first rock record released on atlantic See, that's the really creativity. Did you ever hear a version of one of your songs? You're like, what the hell is that? Well, you know, Kim, what's her name? Kim Wilde? Kim Wilde you have did. To so Kim Wilde had a big hit on with this. that song, You yeah. Keep Me Hanging On, but it was around 15, 20 years later. <laughs> Did you ever listen to that and say, those drums are so obnoxious, what'd you do to my songs? No, but you can see creativity, you know, they, they take these songs and make, them, make it their, their own, you know what I mean, uh, can't complain. And then you had, you know, some of the biggest artists of all time, like the Rolling Stones covered Can I Get a Witness. Yes, that's right. What'd you think of that? I love it. Where's your coffee so much I mean, the list goes on and on. The Jerry Garcia Band, Rod Stewart, Fleetwood Mac, Phil yeah. Collins, they're all covering your songs. Phil Collins, I mean, we've done some really great stuff together. You know? Yeah, and then you and Phil Collins became friends and collaborators. Two hearts.
one thing I thought was really interesting is when Motown, the label, yeah. would have two hits with the same song <laughs> written by you with two different artists. So mm -hmm. something like Come See About Me was the Supremes and also Junior Walker. Junior Walker, right. Something else I did with Junior Walker, Roadrunner. Mm -hmm. Roadrunner, which Jerry Garcia band covered. Yeah. Fleetwood Mac covered yeah, Roadrunner. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Boy, I, I've been blessed, I must say. So then... So much to talk about in so little time, but after Motown, you continued to churn out the hits, Frida Payne, Band of Gold, mm -hmm. Give Me Just a Little More Time, Chairman of the Board. Yeah. And then you owned labels. You owned Hot Wax, you owned Invictus, yeah. with, with acts like Honeycomb and Flaming Ember and Frida Payne. You know, just the hits kept on coming. Yeah, yeah, I was, like I said, I've been blessed. <laughs> this guy and he couldn't make love to her because he didn't feel it. I mean, he was from a different, well, he was gay. <laughs> that's what the, a lot of people didn't know that's what that song was about, that the guy couldn't make it happen, you know, because <laughs> he had uh, other feelings. So next time you hear that song, it probably destroyed it for you. <laughs> do, do you have any advice that you'd give your younger self? Uh, if you're going to be a songwriter, you have to have a work ethic, passion that won't, uh, that won't give up. I mean, to order to be a successful songwriter, in order to get the, the muse attention, muses are the ones that give you, that inspire you and keep you going. You have to have a work ethic seven days a week, which I always had and I always believed in. You only get back what you put into a thing. And you have to have the passion. If the passion is there, it'll pay off for you. But you have to believe in yourself and believe you can do it and you can do it with a work ethic. You still writing? Every day, seven days a week. Yeah. What do you... Um that's how I got to have 1,500 songs. <laughs> what are your thoughts on current music? Like when you turn on the radio now, do you like what you hear? Some of it, yeah, some of it I love. Uh, some of us needs to go back to the drawing board, but, but. What are your goals for the future? Musical theater, what else? That's all that's left. <laughs> I mean, to me, musical theater is the, my fair lady. See how that jump out at you? My fair lady is the greatest musical, as far as I'm concerned, I've ever written. I just saw it in New York a few months ago. Can you get tired of it? You never get tired of it. I got it at home. Whenever I get into that mood, I put it on and watch Rex Harris and Audrey Hepburn. Oh, right? Audrey Hepburn. Oh, the movie. Right. Oh, That's man, that thing is a killer. <laughs> I mean, that was the greatest piece of work, one of the greatest uh, musicals ever written. I can't say enough about it. And that's what got me into right? wanting to, to get that, back out there. That, yeah, that, that was, and all my children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the stats are just, you know, just, I have to say them out loud because it's just awe-inspiring. 54 number one songs. Right, yeah. I've been blessed. You are a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. You are a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yep. You are a member of the Rhythm and Blues Foundation. Right. You are a winner of a Grammy Award, a Golden Globe, an Ivor Nervello, a Brit Award, Academy Award nominated, and so many more things that I didn't even have time to, to write <laughs> down because I ran out of paper. But uh, it is an absolute privilege, pleasure, and honor. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for joining us. I appreciate that. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. So nice to see you. Thank you so much. Give me just 
A huge thank you to Lamont Dozier for visiting and mesmerizing us with his first-hand accounts of how all these amazing songs came to be. Make sure to check out our Lamont Dozier playlist on our website for a comprehensive listen to so many of his brilliant creations. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenau, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.